Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. Good evening, my friends. Hey, we have more balcony people this week. I see you up there representing. Oh, so, um, hey, before I dive in tonight, I wanted to make sure that you know this about small groups. Okay, we're um, we try to do this as fast as we can in terms of putting them together, but we need two weeks of signups. So we're putting those groups together like Tuesday and Tuesday night. Uh, you should be notified if you signed up, what group you're in and all of that stuff. All those details should, should be out to you by Wednesday. But I say that because we really need your sign up tonight. And even if you were in a group last semester, we need you to sign up again because the schedules might be different and leaders might be, might be in like different times and places. And so um, even if you were in a group last semester and you want to stay with the same leader, that's, that's great. But just note that when you sign up. You can do that through the app. You can do it like if you might have gotten a paper card. We have them in the back. You can do it on the website. There's like 19 different ways to do it. But please make sure you do that tonight so we can get the groups together. Cool? All right. Well, I don't, I don't want to sound like melodramatic on the front end of my, my sermon tonight. But I, I genuinely believe that tonight might be the most important thing I preach through the year. Um, this entire year. I, I believe wholeheartedly that uh, whether you have been walking with Jesus for a really long time, whether you grew up in church, whether all of this is new to you, whether you walked in the door and you're like, I'm not even sure what this is all about. I'm just kind of checking this thing out. I think tonight matters for you. I really wish when I was sitting in your seat that someone had preached this to me. Really, it would have, I think it might have saved me years of traveling wrong paths and learning things that I needed to unlearn later, okay? So again, at the risk of coming off a little bit melodramatic on the front end, I truly believe that what we're talking about tonight matters a lot. And I don't know how many of you, I'm going to start off with an illustration. I don't know how many of you um, have ever done any mountaineering or climbing or that kind of thing, Um, or if you know what a cairn is. Anybody here know what a cairn is, C-A-I-R-N? I got like four hands in the room. All right, cairn is a French word. It means mound of stones. You don't need cairns much in the Midwest because if you like to hike and stuff, the trails are pretty easy to follow, right? They're mud and they go through the woods and there aren't trees in the middle of them. And so when you see a big path, you're like, hey, that's a path. But when you go someplace that isn't all just grass and mud where there's actual rocks, you know, mountains, um, paths get a little bit harder to find. And so a lot of times what people who are hiking in the mountains or in rocky places, I've seen these in, you know, up north in Minnesota, I've seen them out west, they take stones and they pile them on top of each other and they make a little tower. It can either be like a pyramid kind of tower or just a tall tower, but those are called cairns. And most of them are meant to not really stand out all that much unless you're looking for them. And so the reason why, that they, why they, they develop these or why, why people make these is because if you're in a space where you're walking through this and you don't know where the path is, it's like, ah, oh, I, don't, I don't know where the trail is. I know it got to here, but I don't know. Now it's just all open rock. And you'll look around, and usually, often, some, someone will have placed four or five stones on top of each other that you can see from where you're at, and you're like, ah, a cairn. Somebody knew where I was supposed to go. And so you're like, I know the trail, because I know. Or sometimes it's not just the trail. Sometimes you'll be hiking in a space, and someone will, re, you know, they will realize that there's a waterfall over off to your left. 
and they'll put a cairn that direction so that if you just walk up that, you know, 20 yards, you'll come across an overlook and you'll see something really beautiful that you wouldn't have seen if somebody hadn't gone and put a little marker there. So when I was prepping for tonight, I thought, man, it'd be cool to show you guys like an actual picture of one. And so I went back through, I mean, I I used to do with some guys, I used to do some trips uh, to the mountains in Colorado. And so this was a picture that I just went back into like Google Photos and grabbed, okay? There's a cairn in this picture. Can you see it? Give me a head nod if you think you know where it's at. Let me help you out. It's right there. How many of you found it before I pointed it out to you? So not super noticeable, right? And they're not supposed to be. Like the goal is not when you make a cairn to spray paint it orange and put it there. Like you don't want to ruin the experience for the people that are around. But in here, I can even zoom in on just a little bit for you. So you can just kind of see it there. Someone has stacked four or five rocks there. Why? Because when you get past that snowfield that's back there, it really is difficult to tell where the path goes. It's all just a bunch of rock. And so again, someone in their mercy said, hey, this was hard for me to find, so I'm going to stack these cairns so that you can see where they are and you won't lose the path the same way. I've always thought about cairns when I, read, when I have read this passage. Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, there's a lot in that verse, you guys, but I want you to see just one thing. The race is marked out for you. The race is marked out for you. Jesus hasn't called you on this journey where where he's saying, you know what, it's this beautiful adventure, but you don't have a compass. Sorry, do your best. But that's how a lot of people feel. They're like, I don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. I don't, it feels like I don't know what the next step is or where I'm supposed to go. I want to be here telling you other people have set out cairns for you. And God himself has, has set out cairns for you to follow. He doesn't want you wandering in ignorance. He's not trying to hide the trail from you. The trail is marked out for you. Can you imagine? I don't know how many of you are runners or you've run in like 5Ks or 10Ks or marathons. It would be a miserable experience if nobody marked out the race. You're out in front and you're like, I'm winning. No, you're not. You took a left turn where it was supposed to be a right four miles ago. Sorry, go back. But somebody marks out the race. And God apparently, according to the Hebrews author, has marked out that race for us. He loves us. He loves us enough to go ahead and do that for us. And if you looked at our grander story throughout Scripture, you'd see that God has not been a God who's trying to hide himself. I say this often from the front. God isn't good at hide and seek. You guys, I promise, if he wanted to not be found, he could play God-level hide and seek with you, and you would not find him. I promise. But look at our story. What's he doing with Adam and Eve? He's with them. He's with them in the garden, talking to them, helping them understand what they're supposed to be doing, helping them understand what's right and what's wrong, the boundaries that are marked out for them, their purpose on this planet. Well, they sinned, and so God was like, done with humanity, right? No. No, you fast forward in Genesis a little bit, and you have Abraham, God speaking to Abraham. God helping Abraham 
like to know what his life is supposed to be about. Same thing with Moses. You look at the Old Testament people of God who were wandering through the desert. Where's God? In the center of their camp. Pillar of fire. The tabernacle. You see God speaking through his prophets. You see God speaking through his leaders. We get to the New Testament. God gives us Jesus in the flesh, his son, to lead us. Jesus is Jesus is, is killed, is resurrected. He's not here with us anymore. Does God leave us alone? No. Jesus says, I'm sending you the Holy Spirit who will guide you and be with you. He's my active presence with you. And where's Jesus right now? Preparing a place for us. Because Revelation 21 tells us we'll be with him forever. You guys, he wants to be found by you. He hasn't thrown you off the trail. He's not covering his tracks. The cairns are there. If you want to go deeper with the Lord and you want to know who he is, I want to tell you the cairns are there to follow. But perhaps you haven't been trained how to look. And if you don't know how to look, that whole thing that I showed you just looks like a lot of rocks. But when I tell you, no, no, there's, there's a marker in this picture, many of you could look at that and say, oh, I see it. Even though you never knew, even knew what to look for. Oh, I see that. I see that there. That's what we're going to be talking on the next five weeks. These five huge cairns, these markers that God has put out in front of you to help you in the Christian walk. And tonight is not a tiny little cairn. It is a giant tower God has put in your path. If you miss it, the rest of them won't make sense. Tonight's the big one. Because tonight we're going to be talking about God's love for us and our love for him. So why in the world would God come after us? What's his motive? I wrote down these verses. Just hear this. Let them wash over you. How great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called sons and daughters of God, for that is what we are. That's 1 John 3, 1. One chapter later in 1 John 4, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. That's 1 John 4:10. Three verses earlier, John tells us that love comes from God. You guys... I know that there are a lot of things in God's character, but at its core, his motive for coming after you is love. That's what drives him. Is he righteous? Yes. Is he pure and holy? Yes, absolutely. Is he sovereign? You betcha. But the motive of God is love. People will come to me sometimes and they'll say, I have a really difficult theological question for you. I'll say, okay, why would God do all of this? Why would he endure pain and suffering for me? Like, I don't understand. That seems so complex. And I will tell, if you come to me and ask me that question, I will tell you this. I can't answer that. I can. It's actually quite simple. The answer is love. The answer is that his love for you drives him to do that. The follow-up question is usually, yeah, but is that worth it? And then I'm like, I don't know. You've got to take that up with him. I can't, like, I can't answer that question that comes after it, but I can answer the first one. The central motive for our God is love. The most basic verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so what? Loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. What is God's motive? It is love. It's who he is. It's what drives him. Notice the relationship in this passage between loving for God so loved and action that he gave his son. Love drives us to doing. Love drives us to doing. 
Can it be the other way around? It can. It can. But God's love for us and our return love for him is what drives us to doing. The biggest cairn that I have to point out to you, the tower that sits in front of us, is the motive for the Christian life is love. You say, oh, Ben, that sounds too simple. No, 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 be careful. Don't look too quickly past what I'm saying right now. The greatest motive in the Christian life is love. These truths, I want you to sit in for just a moment. That you as a human being are seen, that you are known, that you are forgiven, and that you are loved. Everything in the Christian life flows from these four statements. It really does. This is who you are, son and daughter of the king seen by him, known by him, forgiven by him, loved by him. You say, oh, Ben, you don't know what I've done. I've done stuff that I don't think God can forgive. (laughs) Then take that up with Jesus. Take that up with the Apostle Paul, because I don't need to tell you that that you're wrong. They, They say vehemently that you are wrong. There is nothing you have done he can't forgive. There is nothing you have done he can't love you through. And even if you're here and you're like, well, that's not me, I'm pretty great, he loves you through that too, because that's messed up. (laughs) And he loves you through it. You, my friend, are seen, and you are known, and you are forgiven, and you are loved. And these four truths form the heart of the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus, that God is not just some vindictive boss who's keeping books upstairs, being like, I don't know, she had a pretty crappy day today. I don't know, he's struggling with anxiety again. I don't know, he's falling behind. I don't know, addiction to pornography. I don't know, alcohol. I don't know. He's not doing that. Is he holy? Can he see those things? Yes. But at the core of our Father, there is what? Mercy, love, grace, forgiveness, or he wouldn't keep coming after you. And that is the story that we see in Scripture over and over and over again. I used to think, wrongly, that this was kindergarten Christianity. I used to think that this was the thing that you learned, and then you got past that into the deep things. And my friends, it's wrong. This is the deep thing. This is the thing that as you explore it, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you begin to realize that there is an entire universe that sits in this. Listen to the way that Paul prays this prayer. Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love. You remember that picture last week? Jeremiah 17 and Psalm 1 of a tree, that that mature tree that sends its roots down. Hear that language? Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully, and then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. What I love about this prayer is that Paul is saying, hey, you will never understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Try anyway. Explore it anyway. You're not going to find its edges. Spend your life trying. 
Because when you do that, you will know. You'll be made complete with all the fullness and life and power that comes from God. What do you send your roots down deep into? God's love. They grow down deep into the love of God to know that you are seen and known and forgiven and loved. Well, I said it last week that the Christian life is like a tree, and I keep this picture hanging in my office for this reason. This is where we're going for the next four weeks after tonight, okay, five weeks total. But I want you to understand if the Christian life is a tree, the Christian life is a tree and there's all these other things that flow out of it. Grace is the root system and grace is the trunk. All of the nutrients that you draw in the Christian life flow out of those things. And if you get that wrong, then you get a lot wrong. Because if at the bottom of this, you choose a different motive, if you're like, you know what? Fear is my motive. I'm afraid of what my parents will do or think if I don't somehow get right with God. Or if shame is your motive, where I've done a whole bunch of crap, and so I think I need to do a bunch of good to get on God's good side because I'm just ashamed of who I am and what I've done. If self-hate drives you, and that's what sits at the bottom of this. Obligation or guilt. Guilt's a great motive. I mean, it's a terrible motive. But it will motivate you. But it'll motivate you wrongly. And it'll twist God into something that he isn't. And so if in your life God is some weird oppressive tyrant or angry parent, <laughs> like vindictive guy with a firebolt who's ready to just let it loose on you, a guy who's just constantly disappointed in you, if that's your picture of who the God of the universe is, then grace doesn't sit at the center of this for you. Grace is not your motive in the Christian life. I want to free you from that because you need to go back to this spot of knowing that you are seen and known and forgiven and loved. Man, do I wish somebody preached this to me early. Because this is not what I drew on for a very long time. And therefore, I misunderstood who God was for a very long time. This is not the God of the Scriptures. Our God of grace. But why does that matter? You say, I like... I don't know, Ben, I didn't really learn that growing up, or I, I've been around the church, it doesn't seem... Well, because grace does something to us. And when I use the word grace, I mean, I, I could be talking about the love of Christ, I could talk about the forgiveness of Christ, I could use the word gospel. All of those things mean grace to me. I'm using grace to just sum up all of those things. When I stare in the eyes of the love that my Father has for me, it reorients me. Here's what Paul says about this. If you're tuning out on me a little bit, jump back in just for two minutes. I need you. This is important. Either way, Paul says, Christ's love controls us. Pay attention to that word. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So living for Christ, according to Paul is living a life where love controls us. That word is super interesting. The Greek word is senecho, and it means, some of your translations might say that Christ's love compels you, urges you, directs you. I think the best way to translate that word might be redirect. That might be the best way to translate that word, and it's, as I've spent some time looking at it. So here's the idea. 
It's almost like what Paul is saying is, if this is the straight line that I'm trying to walk like this, you know, and I have in my head the way that I want to walk. Grace is actually kind of like shoving me. Like it's walking alongside me and it's pushing me off that line. It wants me to go a different direction. And so that idea that the grace controls us, that Christ's love compels us, that it moves us, and that it urges us. So, for example, if I grow up in a house where I've got, like, some racial bias that sits in my head, I look down on my nose in certain groups of people, and I make jokes that aren't appropriate, and, like, I have this thing that sits in my head. As I come to follow Jesus, and I begin to, to learn about God's love for all people, grace begins to push at me, I have to resist. If I want to stay on this line, I have to fight it because it will shove me off this line somewhere else. Like, nope, nope, that's not who you are. Nope, that's not who God is. Nope. And you're like, come on, leave me alone. Grace is not a passive thing. We think about it that way, that grace is just this super nice feeling, this warm, fuzzy feeling that we have during worship songs as Christians. No, Paul is saying it is an active force. It has its own gravity that pulls you a different direction. You want to hate another person? You want to have unforgiveness in your heart against another person? Grace is going to walk alongside you and be like, nope, nope, nope. Just pushing you. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't really want that. I, I don't know what to tell you. That is what grace does. You can't have one without the other. The grace of Jesus Christ controls us. It compels us. It redirects us. It urges us. That's what it does. Jesus tells this amazing story about this. Um, I was going to try to recap it, and then I decided to read it. So here it is on the screen. Because people are talking with Jesus, and he often taught in little stories. This is one of them. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king. Now, this king isn't God. Like, this is a slave-owning human king. But he's, he's ref- you'll see the reference here. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who'd owed him millions of dollars, okay? This 10,000 talents is the Bible word that's used, probably around 12-ish million dollars, okay? This guy owed owed him a lot of money, (laughs) in summary. He couldn't pay it. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt, which would be typical slave owner in this time. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. Now I want you to keep in mind, let me get the actual number because I went online and actually did like a a loan calculator thing. This is at least $10 million, okay? Probably more like 12. But at $10 million to repay him in a 50-year loan, this would have been a payment of $55,394.87 a month, okay? So if you were, had this kind of debt, the best you could do would be to go back and say, hey, could we work out a payment plan? I will pay you for the rest of my life. Even if you do that, you got to come up with $55,394 every month. You capable of that? That's Jesus' point. You can't repay it. It's impossible for you in your own, by your own merit, to repay. It is an unpayable debt. That's the point of the story. So, The man falls down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Liar. He can't. 
He knows it. The master knows it. And his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave the entire debt. It's all gone. Forget it. Never mind. You don't have to pay it back. What? But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, a hundred denarii. Okay, probably about $12,000 if, if we're doing the, uh, the math right on what, what Jesus used here. Now, question in the room. How many of you would like $12,000 if I had it to give tonight? Anybody? If I had a suitcase here, you'd be cool with me giving that to you? Life-changing. You, st- you can put your hand down now, Chandler. I don't have $12,000 to give you tonight. Sorry. Um, but here's the thing. You could repay $12,000. I, I, did I do the math on that one? I don't know if I did or not. Uh, no, I didn't do the math on that one. But a few, few hundred dollars a month, maybe. A lot of you have car loans right now that are more than that, okay? We understand that level of debt. And Jesus is using those two numbers intentionally. It's not that $12,000 is insignificant. It's that $12,000 is repayable. But this man, it says the man left the king, went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, grabbed him by the throat, and demanded instant payment. This is right after he left the king. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. And they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? What in the world is Jesus trying to get across with this story? Why is this a teaching element for him? What he's saying is, if someone owes you a debt, if someone has wronged you and needs your forgiveness... And you look at the mountain of forgiveness that you have been given, it is ridiculous to not give unforgiveness to someone else. I don't know if I said that well. Let me say it a different way. Knowing that you are forgiven a lot makes you a forgiving person. So again, you come to me and you say, Ben, I'm having a really hard time with unforgiveness. You know what I'm going to tell you according to what I see in this story? You should spend time thinking about and praying about how you have been forgiven. How do you become a more forgiving person? You stare at the love and forgiveness that Jesus Christ has given you. And it makes it harder to be that much more angry at the people who have wronged you. And people have wronged you. And from a human perspective, you have a right to be angry. But this is what grace does. As you're like, I hate that person and I will never forgive that person. Grace is like, eh starts to push you, starts to nudge you. Hey, Ben, actually, you've been forgiven. Hey, Ben, actually, you have harmed some people. Hey, Ben, actually, you have said some stupid things. Hey, Ben, actually, you have made some stupid decisions. Not in a shameful way, but I begin to look at that, and I'm like, you know what? The love of God who has loved and steered me through that, I don't have the right to withhold love from this other person, to withhold forgiveness from this other person. Grace starts to change me. It redirects me. It urges me. It nudges me. It becomes my motive, just like it's God's motive. I begin to so love that I will give. You see the connection there? This is the grand, grand motive, my friends, in the Christian life. 
And Jesus gives it to us freely. There are so many different markers on the journey, but this is the biggest one. Do not miss this cairn or you get it wrong right from the beginning. God so loved, he gave. You know that moment that Jesus has with Peter in John 21. So Peter has that shameful moment with Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where right as Jesus was being killed, they realized that Peter was one of his followers, and they say, hey, you were with Jesus. And he's like, no, I wasn't. He completely denies Jesus three times over. Remember that story? And then later, after Jesus is killed and resurrected, he meets Peter on the beach. John 21, they have breakfast together. Resurrected Jesus. Peter gets to have breakfast with him. And in that tender moment, this is how Jesus addresses Peter. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yeah. He says, tend my lambs. Okay. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Jesus. Feed my lambs. Okay. Peter, do you love me? Three times he asks him that. Peter says, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I love you. Okay, feed my sheep. Think about that. As Jesus is trying to redirect Peter, what does he, does he just give him a list of stuff to do? No, the primary thing that he asks Peter in that moment is, Peter, do you love me? Do you see my love for you? Can you return that love to me? That will lead to you feeding my sheep. Didn't just give him a checklist. The priority that sat there was Jesus' love present in the life of Peter. That's what that's supposed to look like. So, tonight, my friends, if somewhere along the line you misunderstood, you got burned by the church, you saw a religious person who was just a terrible hypocrite, you, you reacted to all of that, and you projected that stuff on God, if in the beginning of your Christian walk, the love of Christ has not just obsessed you, something is broken with your faith. You missed the cairn. You started the journey down the wrong direction. Is that okay? It's okay. I just so badly want you to come back the right direction. I want you to know who God is and the character of his love for you because everything else flows out of that. And the stuff that we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks, about God drawing us toward his truth and drawing us toward his voice and drawing us toward his community and drawing us toward his mission, all of that springs out of grace and all of it is twisted and awful and ugly if it isn't brought through that filter of grace. We are grace people. It is our motive, just like it's our Father's motive. Brennan Manning has been one of the greatest teachers of grace in my life, just as an author. And here's one of the many things that he has had to say. Imagine that Jesus is calling you today. He extends a second invitation to accept his Father's love. And maybe you answer, oh, I know that. That's old hat. And God answers, no, that's what you don't know. You don't know how much I love you. The moment you think you understand is the moment you do not understand. I am God, not man. You tell others about me, your words are glib. My words are written in the blood of my only son. The next time you preach about my love with such obnoxious familiarity, I may come and blow your whole prayer meeting apart. You will never be able to fully explore 
the deep caverns of God's love, remember what the Apostle Paul says, try it anyway. Try anyway. This is what the Christian life is supposed to be like for you, to know that you are seen, to know that you are known, to know that you are forgiven, to know that you are loved. That is the motive of the Christian faith, and everything else will flow from that. Let me pray. Father, for some of us, uh, your love has grown too familiar. Uh, we've tamed it down and we've treated it like a kindergarten lesson, and I pray that you'd accept, uh, you'd accept our sorrow for that. I pray that it would flow fresh in our lives. Some of us missed it altogether. Jesus, I pray that you'd help us unlearn those wrong things and come back to your grace. And I pray that you would just help us sit in this simplicity of what it means to be seen, what it means to be known, what it means to be forgiven, and what it means to be loved. And we love you, Jesus, and all of our, our effort and all of our desire uh, help that just to flow out of our love that's returned back to you, Christ. Reorient us. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.